From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specialising in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. Today, ladies and gentlemen, my guest is Charlie Prow. And anyone who's been involved in country racing in Queensland will have come across or have heard this name on a number of occasions. Charlie, without doubt, is one of the most successful country racehorse trainers uh, who has been in Queensland, I'd say, nearly since inception of racing in Queensland. Afternoon, Charlie. How are you? Doing good, thank you. That's good. Charlie, you're situated situated at Blackall and, uh, you know, for those of people who don't know Queensland or don't, you know, haven't been around, you just want to give us a little indication about where Blackall sits within the state. Oh, well, it's about 200 k south east of Longridge and about the same amount of kilometres from Charleville, in the middle of, say, Charleville and Longridge. Puts it nearly in the middle of the state, really, doesn't it? Probably, yeah. They call it a, got a, they call it a central area, like a black stump, supposed to be the centre of Queensland. Yeah, 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 no. So, um... It's no mean feat what Charlie does, uh, you know, and did week in, week out, weekend in and weekend out training racehorses to take around uh, Queensland. But I guess we need to start at the beginning, Charlie. Um, born in Ulo, were you? Yeah, yeah. And wh- when did you move to Blackall? Oh, I was about 12-year-old when we moved from uh, Cullamulla. We were in Cullamulla after we left Ulo. My parents had the hotel in Ulo. And we moved to Kalamala, and we moved up to Blackwall when I was about 12 years old, which would be about 68 years ago. And so did they move into a hotel in, in Blackwall or onto a... No, onto a property at Blackwall, a place called Lissoy, not Listowl. There is a Listowl here too, but this place was called Lissoy. Mm-hmm. And so there was you, and, and how many others came with you? I've got a brother, an older brother. He's about eight, eight or nine years older than me and my parents, mother and father. And so that would have been um, into a world of hard work, I would have thought, um, that long ago in the, in that country. Did you do correspondence or did you bail out of school pretty quickly? Yeah, I just sort of nearly finished school when I was about 12 or 13 year old, yeah. I went to school in Kalamala and Eula. And so, you know, people of your vintage high school and, and uh, boarding school was nearly non-existent then. So what did you do once you'd finished school? I went working with my parents, helping my parents on the property. And so what actually led you to the racehorse industry? Oh, well, I was always involved with horses. I sort of learned to ride when I was five-year-old and used to compete in gym carners and all that type of thing. And I wasn't real heavy. I was only around eight and a half or nine stone. And I, I was no good as a rough rider or anything. I wanted to be involved in some activities or sports. So I sort of started doing a bit of amateur jockeying and riding track work and all that and got involved and kept getting deeper involved and started to like it. I was amateur jockey for a long while and then I got that stage where I was competing against professionals and they sort of said, well, amateur, yeah. You're a pro amateur, so you better take a license out, Stuart, and that told me. So I did. And then I, uh, you know, I was jockeying for a long while, and then you know you could take out a dual license. You could be a, a jockey 
and a trainer. Like when you couldn't ride the minimum, which was 55 kilos, well, I'd be around 57, and they'd give me a dual license where I could train and ride. So when you were when you were amateur jockeying, it was proper jockeying. It wasn't just bush races with stock saddles and, and long stirrups. You were you no, were actually jockeying. So job. who were you yep. sort of riding for then? Anyone who needed a ride, or would you have a permanent trainer? Oh, not really. Never had a permanent trainer, but there used to be a trainer here called Tommy Austin. Yep. And he was fairly old, and I used to help him a lot, ride work for him, probably ride a dozen horses' work of a morning, and I used to, uh, you know, ride in races for him. I used to go to those amateur meetings like Rockhampton. They used to have a winter carnival, and they'd have a day there or a couple of races there for amateur jockeys. This is before I took a licence out. And I would have won about five or six offhand amateur bracelets and probably about the same amateur cup. They used to run an amateur on Queen's birthday. They'd run an amateur cup and an amateur bracelet. Yep. And I rode five, like over the years, I would have rode five or six of each of those. I used to go to Townsville and ride up there. They used to have their amateur meeting two, two days and cans and those places, yeah. So when you... You know, when they sort of said you can't be, you can't continue to ride it as an amateur jockey because, you know, you, you basically were too good and you needed to. Th- there wasn't an option. You that was what you had to do, or you had to to you know get out of the saddle. Yeah, either that or I couldn't compete against uh, professionals. Either if I was going to be amateur, I'd only have places like Rockhampton, Townsville, or Cairns to go to once a year. Was that just based on the number of wins you'd had, or the amount of rides oh. you had? No, with the way I was competing, yeah, probably. I'm not sort of wrapping myself, but I was competing against the professional jockeys as an amateur. I was supposed to be the gentleman rider. There was no riding fees for amateurs or anything like that, and you wasn't supposed to collect any money or anything like that. So mm. yeah, as it turned out, when I did become a professional, well, it was more profitable. I'd probably go to races, have five, six rides and ride a winner or two, and, you know, for them days, probably earned four or $500. Yeah. When you turned, when you became a trainer as well, um, was that when you moved into town or did you continue just to train out on the property and, and take your horses to wherever you needed to be for the weekend or did you move into Blackall once you sort of started to get serious about training horses? No, well, yeah. Well, uh, my parents, they had a couple of butcher shops then, we, like family did. And I used to work in the butcher shops in Blackall. Baku Butchery was the name of the shops. Racehorse trained from 4.30 in the morning, butchered till 5 o'clock and then fed up in after 5 o'clock. Would have been a big day. Yeah, a lot of times, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or I'd have someone feeding up for me while I was helping, still helping in the shop. Yeah. And Saturday morning, I'd, if I was going to Longridge or somewhere, I'd go and give a hand in the shop and then I'd go to Longridge, which is a couple of hours away, yeah. Yeah. In those days, were the horses that you trained ones that you owned yourself, or did you, you know, did you have a fairly um, big string of of horses for training for other people? Yeah, they were. When I turned professional, they had to sort of race in my wife's name and Gail's name because a jockey or a trainer, or a trainer can own a horse, but a jockey couldn't. But any any that I was racing, I used to race in Gail's name, and I used to have outside horses that belonged to friends, like the Bankses. They were great racy people around Blackall. I used to have their horses. And yeah, now information indicates that you were a dual jockey trainer for thirty five years. So, 
it took you a long time to give away being the jockey. What what sort of brought that on? Oh, well, I had increasing weight, you know, and I didn't want to knock myself about, you know, dieting and wasting too much. So I sort of pulled the stuff. And so, you know, the dieting and the wasting back then, do you think it was a completely different ball game to what, you know, the jockeys that you have today have to go through? Or is it tougher today to be a jockey than than back when you were a jockey? Oh, well, back them days, you know, the, the, the minimum was light. I did, now it's a 56 minimum. It used to be a 55 minimum when you had a bit of size about you. When you're normally about the 57 and that, you'd have to diet the last couple of days and waste and run with sweat coats on and that type of thing. I still like doing it when the time come. I like when I didn't like doing it when I was doing it to lose weight, <laughs> but the day at the races was great. I used to get the adrenaline up, whatever they call it, and all of that, and it used to be great fun, I thought. I loved it. I used to say, I can't say that now, but I used to say I'd give 10 years off my life to go back to jockeying again. This is for <laughs> 20, 30 years ago. And I can't do that now. <laughs> I used to lie. I don't know what it was. It was just the adrenaline in it. Go through two or three hard days for food and that goes, but you, when the morning, day come and the races, you'd feel a million dollars again. Yeah, yeah. Must have been some worrying days for your mother sometimes, going, Jesus, you haven't eaten much for the last two days, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> She'd try to get me to eat the right stuff, but you'd crave for something a bit sweeter or something, yeah. It certainly would be a battle, I think, to, um, you know, to continue to maintain that. And like you say, it can be pretty hard on your on your body, that constant, you know, the wasting for the last 48 hours or so must be fairly tough on it. Yeah. When you're drying, when you're drying out, you know, you feel like you'd like a big glass of cold water or something. You maybe just have a mouthful, and sometimes you might even spit it back out. You know. Yeah. But I, when I first started to ride as an amateur, I didn't think I was going to have a career that I had. I mm. just thought, you know, I'm just going to do this. It's going to be good fun for a while, but as it got more successful, the more I kept at it. Then it's a bit like a drug. <laughs> <laughs> If it wasn't so successful, I probably would only last a couple of years. Yeah. I'd think, oh, fuck this, I'm, I'm giving this away, you know. But I just, the winning part used to be real good and I enjoyed that and I, then I'd put up with the other part to, to get the winning part. Clearly, you know, you obviously had a love for horses from a young age. Um, when did your love for horses sort of develop into something that you would eventually become a lifelong love and a lifelong industry for you? Oh, well, probably five-year-old, and then, you know, when, then when we had the pub in Newlo, we used to get out in the middle of the street, like, all oh, just dirt road and that, and we used to go up out and race our ponies. There'd be four or five other kids around town have ponies. There was no motorbikes or anything then days, and we'd have races up the street and all that in front of people and all that, and mm. enjoyed. That's where it first started off, probably as 10, 11-year-old at that stage, yeah. So how old were you when you had your first amateur ride? Probably about 17. Oh, okay. I just thought this is going to be good. And, you know, I started to ride a bit of track work first to get into a pad and ride a bit of track work first. And I thought, oh, and because different ones suggested, oh, okay, well, you might as well ride, ride our horse or ride this horse or something like that. Where was your first amateur ride? It was in Blackhall. In Blackhall, right. And where was your last one? I can't think now, probably Longridge. I was riding amateur for a long while and I was let ride amateur amongst the professionals. 
Mm-hmm. And I met another night. I used to, you know, as I just said there before, I used to go to Cairns and Townsville. They used to have big amateur parades, what they couldn't count in Cairns, like street parades and all that. It was a big, used to be a real big show. The governor of Queensland would be up there and all of that two-day race meeting. Have about seven or eight races each day and probably them day four, which would be a lot of people, them day four or 5,000 people get the races at Cairns and all that. Yeah, it's um, it certainly was a, a big thing the amateur racing back in those days, and sadly, it's probably one of the things that has has sort of drifted our way in the in the racing industry. They were always good days; it attracted lots of people who n- wouldn't yeah, normally. And people used to want to be amateur, you know, members and all of that, where they'd have functions, they'd have balls of a night, dance of a night, and all that sort of thing. And yeah, this is back, you know, forty year ago. Yeah, to be a member of the amateur race club somewhere was always regarded as a bit of an honour. Of course. They just didn't hand them out willy-nilly. So um, I've just got a, a little, a couple of statistics here that are, you know, would be nothing short of amazing, I guess. Since 2000, you've had 725 wins, 1,397 places and 4,961 starts. I don't know that there'd be many racehorse trainers in Australia who could parallel that living in an area where you lived, I'd shudder to think, how many millions of miles do you think you would have travelled to achieve those? Oh, well, just hard to put a, a, number, a figure on it. But, you know, I used to travel to Virgil, which is about 800k down and 800k back. And I'd travel, you know, to other places, Winton, which is not that far, probably about 400k from Blackhall to Winton. And, you know, back to Charleville, Tullamulla, Rockhampton. Would have travelled lots and lots of kilometres. I wouldn't know how many, but lots and lots. So when you went to places like Birdsville, it's like you say, it's a long way to go. Did you go with just one horse? Oh well, I, when I used to go out a truck, I know a truck, and I'd take eight at eight two-day races. They have a six each day. Yeah. Uh, the first year, I think it was eighty-four. I think eighty-four, eighty-two. I think eighty-four. I won six out of the twelve races. Like trained them and rode them. And I won the Birdsville Cup, which I thought was great, mm. And uh, as a jockey and trainer. Oh, wow. You, are you the only one to have done that? Been, I think. I have won another one when I was just a trainer. I won another Birdsville Cup back, I don't know, be 15, 20 years ago. It would be in the 2000 century, yeah. Well, wow. Uh, it certainly is, is a, a fun race meeting to be at. and would, I could only imagine how much fun you would have had Training the winner of the Birdsville Cup. Who owned that horse? A fella called uh, Kevin Hoff. Mm-hmm. He had a place around, probably around here. He's not here now. He's down around Dolby somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, you know, them days, like, Birdsville was hard to get there and, you know, people would come from South Adelaide, South Australia and that. They'd probably be... Uh, now, they, I think they have, you know, six or 7,000 people. Them days, they would have had a... 4,000 or 5,000 people gather there. Mm. The, uh, the facility was just camp on the creek. I put portable yards up, panels for it, put your horses in, and you just camped on the creek. There wasn't only me. There was other people. There's people from Adelaide and all that place who would bring horses to there. You would have met some amazing people over the time and made some great friends, I guess, um, just by being at places like that, like you say, where everything Everyone was in it together and you're all in the same spot. Um, and that's probably something that can be said about country racing, isn't it? It is a friendly environment where everyone knows one another and 
you get to the races and, you know, you know heaps of people when you turn up. It's not like going to race in Brisbane where everyone's each for their own, is it? That's for sure. You know, you're friendly with people. You like to, but you like to win, but you're still friends with them. You know what I mean? Where yeah. probably places like Brisbane, you don't know who you're racing against, and out here, so most time, you know, eighty percent of the people who you're racing against, you're friends with them. But the winner wins, and that's it. You know, you, there's no no grudge or think, oh, that bugger's won or won or something like that. He's had a jigger or something like that. Mm. But it's just you know, everyone's still friendly. Yeah. So did you ever race in the – did you go to town, as they say, in the in the industry? Did you ever go to Brisbane or you just thought, no, I'll stick with what I know best? No, oh, I did take a horse a couple of times to Brisbane, yeah, and I've ridden there. They used to have – at exhibition time, they used to have a Corinthian that was just for amateur riders because a lot of country people would go down for the exhibition and on the Wednesday they'd have this Corinthian, like they'd have seven or eight, eight or ten races, but there'd be a race just – for amateur jockeys, and that come from near and far. I run second and won one time on a horse called Sunny, but I never ever won one. So did you ever delve into the breeding of the horses, or did you just think it was easier to buy them? Oh, no, I had, uh, I was, you know, with my brother in a couple of stallions, we bred horses out here that's a horse called Bermuda Bird. I bred him, and he won a Queensland Guineas. Mm-hmm. And then I kept <clears throat> kept him as a stallion. He was a stallion, and I kept him and bred a good few bush horses that he was a sire of. You've obviously put him out to stud. Oh, there was mares come into him. I, you know, in them days I'd only charge five hundred dollars for a service fee, but there was different blokes used to put mares to him. Yeah, and they uh, yeah a lot of his stock won races, like one horse called King Bermuda. He won the Glismore. Or oh, Grafton and some other cup won three cups in a row. He, was, he wasn't mine, but he was one that, that, that by Bermuda Bird, yeah. And so did you go into partnership with people to buy horses and breed horses and then you'd be the trainer or did you just decide it was easier for you to stay the trainer and, and stay out of who actually owns it? Oh, no, I used to go in as partnerships with them, you know, three or four of us would go into a horse sometimes, buy a horse like that. Probably wasn't good enough to win in, say, Brisbane or somewhere, and he'd be up for sale and three or four of us would say, oh, we ought to buy this horse, he'd make a good Western horse, and a lot of times they did. So what was the most you ever paid for a horse? What sort of money was was the going rate back then? Oh, five or six thousand, yeah. You'd buy a fairly handy horse for five or six thousand. That just wasn't quite good enough to win in town, like Brisbane or somewhere. He'd probably run fourths and fifths and that, but he'd be just a bit above him out here and he'd win more than his turn. So, Charlie, your kids, are they all into horses or did they see that much of horses as growing up that they didn't care less if they never saw another horse again? No, they're all into horses, me and my grandkids and my daughter and... One of my daughters, that one's not interested in horses, but the other one is. And you know Jamie Lee, do you? Yeah, I do, yep. Yeah, well, she's a granddaughter. She's in horses, and she's got a little girl, 10 year old, called Charlie Rose. They probably named her after me. She's a real good little barrel racer yep. and all that. She won things in Rocky Air a couple of weeks ago and all that. She's, she'd make a good jockey, but I probably won't be about to try and help her. <laughs> <laughs> She's got the will to win. I'll tell you a funny story. I used to be the publican at the Ralston Hotel a few years ago and your bill was driving cattle around Ralston for a little while back when it was dry a few years ago. And yep. 
his oldest little fellow was only a little boy then. He was the funniest little fellow, and I bet he could now ride a horse because he could tell us in the pub then how well he could ride. And he was only about four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's about ten now. He's a good little rider. And yeah. uh, Billy's like always had horses, camp drafting and all that, and does droving. He's got a property down there, Charleville, and he does go droving sometimes with a couple of thousand cattle from up north and that, yeah. Yeah. Most of my family has all been horsey minded. You know, it makes it a whole lot easier when everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet, doesn't it? Yeah, of course it does, yeah. And I, you know, I still got a horse, I got three where I live just out of town now, and they're not much good. Forty years ago, I wouldn't have those type of horses, but, you know, at my age, I'd just have them just to, uh, just to something to muck around with. I'd like someone, I don't sort of like traveling, I'd like someone that, could I could I don't say trust, but someone that could come and pick them up, race one, and take them to Longridge for me, and I'd have everything ready when they got home, and that sort of thing. I don't like two or two and a quarter hours to Longridge and the same back, you know, and especially yeah. in the winter time. And yeah, no, I'm, I could understand. But I still that. enjoy having them around, yeah. you know, going down in the afternoon, and we've got our last race meeting in Bark all on the twenty eighth, Saturday week. Mm-hmm. I'll start them there, and then you know they'll so I go, well, I've got a bit of dry feed, and I'll give them hay and that in the paddock. Then, but I don't know if they'll return because they're not not much good. They've won four or five races each, probably, but they're not much good. As I just said, I wouldn't have forty years ago. I wouldn't have had them because I got rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm left with them now. And I, and, I'm, you know, just got them to poke around with, yeah. Gives you something, a reason to get out of bed at half past four every morning, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no. But I used to like, uh, you know, you said that I breed them and have them, and I used to like breeding them and have them and, you know, break them in. I used to do that myself and educate them. You'd think to yourself, well, how's this one going to turn out? And, you know, when you break them in and start them in races and that, mm. just educate them and ride them myself and that. Now, we can't have a discussion with Charlie Prow by not mentioning Miss Petty. That must have brought you so much uh, fun and certainly cemented your name very firmly in the, in the country racing world. Do you want to give us a bit of information about, about her? Yeah, well, she come to me, these friends sent her to me. She'd been racing around Warwick and uh, Moree over the water and that and they just said, oh, she's only a speedy squib. She only likes 800 metres. She's not much, can't go much further than 800 metres. She'd won two or three around Gundawindi and probably Moree in those places. And these fellas said, oh, she might be a proposition out here. We have, do have 1,000 metre races and that, and black or short races, like, like in this area, central Queensland. So they, they got her and uh, brought, her out, brought her out here and she went on and won 22 state. I won with her. She's nearly good as winks. Yeah, well, until what's ain't come along, until back caviar come along, and she won 24-25. She had the, Miss Petty had the record for a long while. I thought there won't be another horse break this for a fair while, but that was for about 10 or 15 years. And then black caviar come along, and then wings come along. Probably only one difference, Charlie. Neither black caviar or wings carried 66 kilos. That's right. That's be one difference, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know. I mean, it's a, she would have been an amazing horse, and you don't know, and you don't think about things like that until you sit down and really look at the stats. You know, sixty-six kilos in this day and age is unheard of, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So she must have been an amazing horse. What ended up happening to her? Did you just retire her? And yeah, the owners they bred a few foals out of her. That was all right. One had won 
10 out of 11 until she broke down, or Philly out of her, or a mare out of her eventually. But uh, then she died with blood poisoning having a foal mm. down at Gundawindi. Fred Giltrow, he is one of the part owners of her, and he had her down there in a better country or better seasons. And uh, she died uh, with blood poisoning having a foal. Mm. But she had four or five, and they were all pretty handy, yeah. Oh, good. Was she an easy horse to train, or was she a bit contentious? She was a lovely horse to train, yeah. She was a lovely horse. She was a, like a mare, naturally. We just spoke about that. And, you know, she'd never... You could ride her to the track. I had a couple of printers with me, and they used to ride her up to the track. We used to ride some to the track and lead them, and some would go up by float. But they used to go early in the morning, when the printers would ride her to the track and lead another one off her. And you could just ride her into the store. The stables were about three-quarters of a mile from the track in town, this edge of town. And they could just ride her up and lead one. They could jump off her. She'd go in and turn around herself and be in position and be tied up while they tied the other horse up. And uh, either him or I or the princess or I would jump on her and then work her. And, you know, you could lead her. She'd never sow or anything. Like every time you took her to the races, she'd get around with her head hanging down. You wouldn't think that she's going to do anything. Mm. And she was the same in the barriers. You'd, you know, a couple of times she'd do 10 and 12 alley and she'd be wide out and she'd be half hanging her head down. You'd have to, you know, when you started to get on the stand, <laughs> you'd have to dig, give her a bit of a dig up or just give her the reins a bit of a jerk, let her know whether we're going to race in a couple of seconds, you know. <laughs> yeah. But when them gates opened, she'd just come out running. If they were going too fast for her, she'd just take a bit of a sit, run second or third, and, you know, when the time was to ask her for something, she'd uh, produce. Mm, seems to be the thing. Different ones used to say, oh, well, we'll take her on today and bust her up. Even jockey, other jockeys say, we're going to take you on today. And I'd say, well, that's all right. You can lead, I'll take a sit. And that used to happen. <laughs> sometimes she'd lead and sometimes if they wanted to hunt the ears off theirs, they could. Yep. And you'd take a sit and she'd come over the top of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, Bertie tells me that uh, she was your greatest love. She was. Even more than Gail. Is that right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you, you would have to put Miss Petty as um, the horse up there that was um, helped you um, receive all of the accolades that you received. She was inducted into the Queensland Racing Hall of Fame in 2018. Yeah. And then you in 2019. Yeah. And do you think uh, she was what was instrumental in getting you over the line? I think so. I think if I, she hadn't come along, I may have retired earlier. But all that that had with her and that continued on with the back of my mind, you know, I enjoyed having her and all that. Probably if she hadn't come along, I might have retired earlier. Mm. I would have only, you know, would have only had her for say three years at the most, but. It wasn't so, well, it was that as well, I had it for the three years, but after that, it's just the memories of Miss Petty and the way I was referred to. Oh, you're the bloke that had Miss Petty, or you used to ride Miss Petty and all that. Mm. Just kept me sort of, you know, want to keep on doing it. Over the years, Charlie, there'd be a lot of country jockeys around who could thank you for their, for their careers and the time and effort that you would have put into them. You probably don't want to say one was the best, but do you think one, you know, one of the jockeys that you had over the time was, was you know, he was just, they were just born to be a jockey? Yeah, probably, but I would have had about, I don't know, 12, 14 apprentices here, and probably, you know, six out of the, half of those would have 
be just a, like wanting to be jockeys the same as I was. At the other half, when they got a bit heavy and think, oh, it's not, it's not worth it, you know, I'll get another, another occupation, you know. It's probably six, like Todd Austin, he's trained and he's a friend of Stimmy and he trains in Bark Alden now. He's, a, he's one of the leading all trainers out here. And, mm. and Bradley Johnson, he comes from here and he was like, he was with me. And then when he, well, he, he wanted to change his profession, he got married and that and he went to be a vet. And uh, well, chemist first up, and then he went and been a, he went to be a vet, and he, he, like he's a vet now in Rockhampton. And you know, he uh, he wasn't real smart with paperwork, but he had that yeah you know, that bit of go about being he wanted to be with horses too. And so did all of these guys who you you know who you put in on as apprentices. Did they sort of come to you, or did you sort of look and go around? I mean, I'm a, I'm a tiny little thing myself, and if I had a dollar for every time I'd got asked, do I want to be a jockey and did I want to come and ride track work, I would have been a very wealthy lady. Did you sort of go around Blackwall and, and the Central West going, look at the size of that bloke, if I could just get him to be a jockey for me, we'd be right? Or did they all come to you with this undying love of horses and wanting to ride? Yeah, most of them just come to me. I always had a couple of you know, ponies or stock horses at the stables, and they used to come up and, you know, and and they looked to be fairly smallly built, and I'd say to them, well, you, you know, you, do you want to be a jockey? And you, you will learn to ride. Some would come there, and they'd probably never been on a horse, but they used to get on the pony and put an acreage there, a couple of acres and a little paddock near the stables, and they'd go from trotting and nearly falling off to going faster and cantering, and then, they, you know, they'd start wanting to ride work and, and kept on, you know, then they enjoyed it. And... Yeah. You've certainly got some impressive names here, Um in the jockey makeup that um, went on to be successful jockeys and, and would be able to thank you for all of that time and effort. What sort of time and effort does it take to, to get an apprentice jockey to one that is is a successful, reliable jockey? You know, is it 12 months, two years? Within six months, can you look at a bloke and go, you know, I know you wanted to be a jockey, but you're never going to be a jockey, so go off and be a bricklayer. Yeah, or well, something like that. That has happened. But others, just as they want to be a part of it, they want to say, can I, you know, can I ride it work? I'd say, well, it, you know, in the early stages, I'd say, well, you, you mightn't handle it. You know, you ride quite a one. But they'd sort of insist that they'd sooner they'd want to ride something that was a bit more goey. And then, that, you know, and they sort of, they were the type that went on and, and, and was better jockeys. They didn't want to be kept down and think, oh, you know, I'm only just the, uh, you know, the shit carrier around here or something. They just wanted to get up there. They just wanted, they wanted to be the, like up on the top, yeah. Yep. Um, so our research indicates that, you know, in your younger days you did some a lot of droving. Was that to supplement the racehorse training or was that prior to training? You know, sort of, and how much time did you spend doing that? Oh, well, different times, you know, uh, like, you know, might want to take some of our stock on the property and, then, you know, it got dry and the feed was good. People had, like, the stock routes had got a bit of feed on them and when I'd go with them probably in the off-season, probably from, you know, October till January or February till the season sort of broke and we brought the stock cattle home. Yeah, you know. But it wasn't, it wasn't to substitute the income for it, it was just that, I used to like doing that too, the stock work, you know, dogs and that sort of thing, yeah, cattle dogs. Mm. I never ever sort of only worked for my father or my parents and that, 
I never ever took a job. I never ever worked for anyone. I was mainly worked for myself or with my parents, you know. I never had a job where I was getting two or three hundred a week or something. I was helping my parents and I'd have me few of my own cattle. If I want to go out of a night when I was 17 or 18, I'd probably have to go and get 10 quid of my parents to go out, that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> yep. I never had a, I never sort of had a bank account or anything when I was younger and that sort of thing. Never worked for, say, two or three hundred a week or anything. I just had me own that to try and make when I'd sell a few cattle. One time I had my first car and bought a car for, I don't know, five or six thousand dollars probably and might have been quids those days too. But I had to provide mainly for myself. Mm-hmm. Charlie, you're obviously very well respected within Western Queensland and not just probably for your racehorsing, but for all of the stuff that you did for for the community. It must have been an honour back in 2013 uh, when they named the pavilion um, at the Blackall track after you. Do you still go to the racetrack every day and look at that and think, I'm happy with what I've done in life? I do. I don't go every day, but I do. And, you know, other jockeys, younger jockeys look and, like they come here to ride and they go, you know, trot up the plimer, up to do their plimery and as they turn around to work back to go to the barrow, they'd see that there. It's a big sign, you know, mm-hmm. and probably think, I hope one day I'd be like Charlie Prowl, you know. Yeah. It was great for it to be done for me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, great people deserve great rewards and you clearly have contributed a lot to the community in which you live in in, in lots of ways. You said now you've got a few horses in training for yourself. So are you back home on the property now and, and winding down? Is that is that the aim of the game? Yeah, for sure, yeah. Just winding down, unless, you know, I... I could have a better type of horse or a couple of better types of horse. I went away and paid fifteen or 20000 for them, but I don't want to do that the way I am, you know. Mm. Uh, I might go and do that and go arse over it in another six months or something. I've had a stroke and a heart attack and all that. But, uh, you know, and then when I uh, was yachting and training, and that did a different part-time trainers in town here, there'd probably be 40 horses in work in Blackhall, and sometimes I'd probably would ride, you know, half of that of a morning. That'd be opposition. I wouldn't. They'd say, "Would you ride one work for us, Charlie?" Yeah, right. You put a saddle on. I'll come back and do it. But some blokes I know, plenty of some blokes that would say, "Oh no, you know, I'm not riding work for you or something like that. Your opposition or something." But that wasn't my caper. I'd jump on their horse and work them, gallop them, whatever they wanted to do with them. Mm. So over the years, well, it must be nearly 50-odd years that you've been training racehorses, what do you think has been the biggest change in the racing industry and in the way you train horses? Oh, well, you know, a lot of trainers now, they, you know, one time if you had, tw- if you had a dozen horses, you'd nearly have to have a work rider. But now a lot of, I know some trainers around here, Henry Foster, Boy Foster and Ilfracom, he's got about 12 horses in work. And he hasn't got a work rider or anything. He trains them out of the car and pretty successful with them. And, you know, one time you had to have a work rider and then one time, you know, ringers could come in if they were light, blokes 10 or 11 stone, they'd ride them work for you. But now they've got to be, you know, for sake of insurance, they've got to be registered jockeys or registered work rider, track work riders or something. Mm. But one time you could go probably down to a pub one night and say, mate, would you come up and ride, a, ride work for someone that you knew that, could do it, but you know, if they come up and the horse broke its leg and they got fell, and the horse fell on top of them, 
you know, they wouldn't be insured or anything like, you know, it'd be all the strife in the world, you know, if there wasn't a registered work writer. Yeah. Ringers that used to ride them one time, they, some would ride them in a holy saddle if you had one that sort of might want to buck a bit or something. You'd uh, get some ringer to give it a ride in a poly saddle, get it going, ride it work for a couple of weeks, but them days are gone. You can't, it'd have, it'd have to be a registered track work ride. There's signs all around the track. You've got to have the right gear, and they used to come up and ride them just a hat on. They wouldn't have a skull cap or a vest or anything. It's interesting. My father-in-law was big into racehorses, and we actually have his jockey pad at home that I have had framed, and it's it's quite a significant saddle, really, compared to what they ride with now. Uh, do, do you think a lot of that sort of stuff has changed for the better in relation to, you know, this, the, the jockey pad that, that they ride in now? is There's not a lot to it. They've definitely got smaller and lighter, I would have thought, over the years. Do you think that's for the good of the industry, or do you think it's just evolution and the way it goes? Oh, I don't think there's much difference. You know, I think there's... The lighter, the better in some cases because, you know, they haven't got to lose as much weight. I've had, you know, five-ounce saddles and all that just to somewhere to hang a couple of serpent leathers on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> don't get the weight. But I don't think the size of them would make any difference, like how long you stayed on them or anything like that, you know. Mm. That if that a five-pounder saddle is a good-sized saddle, like exercise, well, I call it exercise saddle that you ride track work in. But there's not much, once you get riding in a race, there's not much of you that really touches the horses, only your legs and you only need stirrups, you know. Mm, yeah, no. I always, uh, that was the part that used to put me off when they would ask me would I like to go and track ride. So if I can do it in a normal saddle, I'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've enjoyed every bit of it, like, all well, my life. I, if I had my life over again, I'd try and do the same thing again. I haven't finished with a great lot of money, but I've made a lot of good friends and, you know, sort of come out of the woodwork. If I hadn't have been a jockey, I'd probably been some old bugger just walking around the pub drinking grog. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. You know, it's just good to, it's good to do what I was doing. I enjoyed every bit of it. And if I had my life over again, I wouldn't do anything different. Charlie, it's certainly been a great chat an amazing life and some amazing wins and certainly you have contributed a lot to Queensland racing. There will be a lot of people who will have a lot to live up to to be able to even come close to what you've done. Thanks for the chat today and uh, we wish that those couple that you've still got left might have a couple of more wins left in them before you finally hang up the bridle completely. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed having this conversation with you for a half an hour more whenever it's been. It's been great. That's great. We might catch up with you somewhere soon. Yep. Take care. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Yep. Bye. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specialising in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram.